Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we are doing a True Crime Digest. It's number 15. If you are new to True Creeps, our True Crime Digest episodes are where we provide updates on cases we've previously covered. Sometimes we'll also discuss new cases, but since we haven't done one of these since August of 2022, we're just going to be doing case updates. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a a very long time. And some of these, a lot of them are from True Crime Digest episodes. Others are from standalone episodes that are recent or very far away. But I feel like some of these we haven't updated on in over a year. First up, we're going to talk about an unidentified body that was found in Maryland. And we first talked about this in our True Crime Digest 5. That was back in 2021. And we discussed that remains have been found in the Catoctin Mountain Park in Thurmont, Maryland. As a reminder, there were partial remains that were found. And in June of 2021, with the help of the FBI, the remains were identified as Joanna Michelle Amaya, also known as Dior Reyes. And there is no information as to her cause of death. She was just 21 when she died. And there really aren't too many details available about her, her disappearance, or the investigation, unfortunately, which I find really heartbreaking because something clearly happened to her. Right. And there's very, very little information available. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. But we'll keep an eye out to see if we find out more. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll hopefully be able to do these a little more frequently. So another one that we talked about in True Crime Digest 7 was the Chad Isaac conviction. And just as a refresher, in August of 2021, we discussed the conviction of Chad Isaac for the murders of Lois Cobb, who was 45, William Cobb, who was 50, Adam Fuhrer, who was 42, and Robert Fackler, who was 52. There was a significant amount of evidence that pointed to Isaac, but there wasn't a clear motive. So for our update, on June 30th, Isaac's counsel, who is Kiara Cross Parr, filed an appeal on his behalf. Isaac hanged himself in the state penitentiary in Bismarck on July 31st of 2022. How bizarre. It's just a month later. Yeah, yeah. And he was taken to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead. The guard who was supposed to have checked on Isaac that evening did not follow procedures. I didn't really see which procedures he didn't follow, so it's not clear whether that would have changed the outcome or not. But it is still something that shouldn't have happened, especially like, you know, when someone's behind bars. Yeah. And there's people that are paid to make sure that doesn't happen. Yes, exactly. So we talked about Rodney Alcala when I believe it was actually when he died. And this is just an interesting tidbit. But Anna Kendrick is directing a movie about Rodney Alcala, who's the dating game killer, and it's titled The Dating Game. And there hasn't been a release date yet, but I believe this is her first movie she's directing. Interesting. Quite recently, we covered a possible serial killer in Iowa, and his name was Donald Studi. And one of his daughters, Lucy, has been claiming for decades that he was a serial killer. Lucy, now in her 50s, claimed that when she was a child, she was forced to help bury her father's victims on their family's property. And her claims have varied that he murdered between five to 70 women. And we have an entire episode on the case and the claims, if you're interested. But our update is something that I really didn't expect that I found 
fascinating. Right? So, in the first week of December, law enforcement spent three days performing what they describe as an exhaustive search of the property. Just as a note, the property on which he had allegedly buried his victims that Lucy talks about was acres and acres. It wasn't just like a small backyard. It was acres and acres of land that changed since she had been there last. And I think that that's really important to note as we talk about this next part. Yeah. Law enforcement reported that there was no evidence of, quote, items of concern in the areas that Lucy had identified. And Lucy has claimed to take a polygraph, and she's had really, really harsh criticisms of law enforcement. She went so far as to claim that they dug at the wrong site and that they knew that. From what I understand, there was a wet well and there was a dry well at the time when she lived there. And I'm assuming the wet one was the one that was in use at that point. And she was like, I think I may have gotten mixed up where each well was. Well, and she was a child. So that's a long time ago. Yeah. She said that she even reached out to law enforcement to tell them like, oh, hey, I think that I may have mixed up the areas. Again, as we mentioned in the original episode, we talked about how different the areas looked from when she had lived there. She was very adamant that she had reached out to them, told them that it could have been the wrong spot, and that they still dug in that first spot that she had identified. And so she has left social media for a few months, but her last post said, I have to remove myself from social media and from commenting about this investigation. I made this agreement in order to get a new excavation done in the spring of 2023. Thank you to everyone who has contributed to the open dialogue here. I promise to keep pushing forward and update you as soon as I can. And I just find it really interesting that she was saying some like very intense claims about law enforcement and their efficacy and ability to do their jobs. So it's interesting that she made so much of a fuss that they were like, if you just stop, we will do this again. Well, I'm glad they're going to check again. Me too. The next update that we're going to talk about is Daniel Robinson. We have a full episode about him and his disappearance, but we've also been talking about him in so many of our True Crime Digest updates. But as the briefest of recaps, when Daniel Robinson went missing, he was 24 years old and he was a geologist that left his work site at Sun Valley Parkway and Cactus Road in Arizona. He has been missing since June of 2021, which is a very long time. Yeah. And his search has largely been conducted by his father and people who he has recruited to help him. But he's been orchestrating it. Yeah, he's orchestrating everything. And from what I understand, paying for it all with the help of people, of course. So here's our update. When he disappeared, he was in Buckeye, Arizona, by the way, just so it makes sense. His father has continued to keep the search efforts alive. And on January 7th of this year, 2023, there was more human remains found in the desert. And that was near Johnson Road and Southern Avenue in Buckeye, which would have been 12 miles away from where Daniel was last seen. Hmm. And it's crazy that I'm saying the word more remains because during these searches, they keep coming up with remains. So it's like, is this some sort of dumping ground? What is going on in Buckeye? So the remains that were found this time were a skull and some other bones, and they were found by Penny Buffington. And there are photos of the bones online. And what people are noticing, too, is that there's a shotgun shell in the photo. Oh, there's also some clothes that were located nearby, but I didn't see pictures of those. She immediately thought of Daniel when she found them because she has been a frequent volunteer in the search efforts. So what she quickly did is alerted authorities. And then she also called Daniel's father, David, and was like, this is what I found. So many people were like, oh, my goodness, this is Daniel. But a couple days later on January 9th, David tweeted that it was confirmed that they did not belong to his son. So it's good that it's not Daniel, but it's very sad that, you know, someone else has passed away and that's how their remains were found. Yeah. 
There is going to be another desert search happening in late February. And I've seen two different dates. So the news was reporting the 18th, but I've seen on David's website that it's the 25th. David has said that he's had to scale back the searches lately because of limited funding. However, a GoFundMe has raised over $326,000 from last time I saw. So we're hoping that this will help Daniel's family to continue the efforts. I really wish that the crowdsourced funding that was used here was tax dollars. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. This case, obviously, overall, it's just fascinating because we're like, what happened? Yeah, right. We found his car. We don't know what happened after that. There's no clues that anyone's really found yet. But something that really is interesting to me is like lack of help that he's receiving from authorities. So Buckeye PD says that it's an active investigation. And recently, detectives have been using technology to develop a clearer picture of Daniel's activities that led up to when he disappeared, which it's wild because it's been a while. So yeah, what's taking so long, right? Another police department, and I I don't quite understand why they're involved, but Tempe Police Department did forensics on Daniel's electronics, and David is still waiting on that report. David has asked the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office to perform forensics on Daniel's Jeep, which I feel like that should be step one, you know? It's weird that it hasn't happened yet. He's a missing person. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very strange. So MCSO says that they have reached out to Buckeye to offer all of their resources, But since they are not the investigating agency in this case, all decisions, investigative methods, and requests for their assistance have to come from Buckeye PD. So they can't just be like, we're here to help. They have to kind of be invited in. I understand it, but I also hate it. Well, I I just don't understand if someone's going, can I help you with this? And you're like, no, 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 I got this, but I'm not going to really do much for it. David was planning a protest at MCSO for the weekend of February 25th, if no action is taken before then. But then I did see on the Please Help Find Daniel website, it says that it's postponed until further notice. So I'm hoping that means that something is happening that we just don't know about yet. Oh, I really, I really do hope that is the case. Yeah. And David, this is on the website, by the way, too. He wrote law enforcement a letter about what he needs help with. And it's dated January 26th of 2023. He's also written many of these letters, though. He has been so vocal and clear with what he needs that it's even more egregious to me. Yeah, he puts up YouTube videos all the time. He's very active on the website, everything. And every time I see his face and how he's just like begging people for help and especially authorities for help, it breaks my heart. It kind of reminds me of our favorite Tim Miller, how he was like, we need action. We need this. And he's doing this for Daniel. And it's heartbreaking. Yes, it really is. So in the letter, he discusses how long Daniel has been missing and how he has completed 45 searches until, you know, they were paused due to funding. He's also talked about how the searches have lacked law enforcement participation and how he's inviting them to assist. The word inviting is just chef's kiss, right? He elaborates that he would like assistance with cadaver dogs, an aircraft capable of taking aerial shots, help searching, obviously, Mm -hmm. a forensics team to help identify remains that they may find. Because, you know, as a reminder, they keep finding remains during searches. Yep. Yep. He also wants some drones that are capable of detecting ground disturbances. He also mentions that there are two vertical mines in the area that have not been appropriately searched. And the well site near where Daniel went missing has been searched by David. But there's some items that need a little further investigating, one of which he believes might be the top of a human skull at the bottom of the well. It's horrific enough. But then you remember that that's his kid. 
That's his baby. Yeah. And that's he's like, can you come see if this is my kid in here, please? Yeah, it's it's just sad. And I say this every time that we talk about Daniel. If you'd like to help search or check out the GoFundMe or sign up to help with even flyer distribution, check out David's website, pleasehelpfinddaniel.com. And he also has some helpful search videos and different things about how you can help. Since we recorded this episode, there was a slight update to what's going on with the Daniel Robinson case. So I wanted to add that to this episode. On February 21st, police reported on a finished special three-day operation, which included a specialized search that ended with, unfortunately, no additional clues. What prompted the search was a police tip about possible human remains inside of a well on January 27th. I'm not sure if that tip came from David or if it is in regard to another tip. Unfortunately, they did not find any additional information in the well, though. I am, though, happy to report that it sounds like they put some effort into the search and them meaning authorities. They called a company to scope out the well and to view the contents within it. And then they also used another contractor with heavy equipment to reach the depth of the well, which would have been about a thousand feet. And they removed what they found. But there were no human remains that were removed from that specific well. Also, what they worked on during those three days is on February 18th, Buckeye Police and MCSO retraced their steps in the area where Daniel was last seen. And this search was a lot more extensive. They included 60 personnel, which was two canine teams, six horses, five crews on ATVs, four crews on the ground, and a person operated a drone. So I'm guessing that's why David canceled the protest is because it looks like they were actually trying. Again, I'm happy that they did something and they they finally put some effort into it. But I am very sad that they came up without any new additional details. Hopefully something will change soon. So Amanda mentioned Tim Miller a moment ago, but there was a Texas Killing Fields docuseries that was released on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And Tim Miller is in it heavily, which breaks my heart every time I hear him talk and speak, kind of in the same way that Larry Woodcock breaks my heart. Like, it's a very particular sadness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, like, my heart just aches. But it, I think it it captures the sadness that is the Texas Killing Fields. It's really good, but it doesn't cover everyone. It covers Calder Road, a couple murders that happened before, and then ones that are after, but they have a relationship to the Calder Road murder and that there's common suspects. And that's how it kind of like comes around, but it doesn't cover everyone. And that's really heartbreaking. As someone who's done that research and seen that list of names, I understand why they probably couldn't because that would be a much, much, much longer docuseries, but it is just such a overwhelming amount of women who have gone missing and have been murdered in that area. And so if you have watched that Texas Killing Fields documentary and you haven't listened to us before, many moons ago, we started our Texas Killing Fields research. And it was actually the first project that Amanda and I dug into when we started True Creeps. We were like, okay, we're going to release our first episode in the beginning of September. And then we started doing Texas Killing Fields research. And we became so overwhelmed with it so quickly because dozens and dozens of women murdered, missing, some with clear-cut reasons why, some where there's two lines and we don't know anything else and there's nothing you can find. Yeah. And not all of them are 40 years ago. Right. Some of them are. No. Some of them are 30 years ago, which, you know, you you would 
I hate to say it, but like 30 years ago (laughs) was the 90s. I hate that. I hate it too. But like there was more coverage then, right? Like, and then we get into like the early 2000s and you think like more coverage too. And so we haven't finished our Texas Killing Fields full reporting yet, mainly because it was just so much. We we took a obviously the world's longest break from it because it was just so in depth and we were just it got to be this point where we're like we're talking about victims and it's like how do you take in this amount of information yeah and the reason why i bring it up is because we were researching for another episode too and i was like maybe we'll finally finish our texas killing fields research i was like surely there's less women now surely there's less now right yeah especially modern times we're talking modern times i'm talking like i was researching like the 2000s, 10s and beyond. Yeah. I'm talking dozens of women. Yeah, still to this day. And to this day, dozens of women. And I'm like, how is this still happening? So all that to say, the Texas Killing Fields documentary, excellent. I loved it. Thought it was very well done. But also, we're working on finishing it. But there's definitely more to tell in that story. And if you haven't listened to the other episodes, I would thoroughly recommend them. They are heavy but they're worth listening. And we have a section on our website where we have the list of the unsolved cases. As we update into the 2000s, when we originally did the research, we didn't have some of the people who we have now in the unsolved section. So there will be at least, at minimum, one more Texas Killing Fields episode. But there might be several because the amount of women that have gone missing and disappeared in not just the 2010s, but also since we began, is higher And it hurts in a way that I can't explain to be like, oh, I thought there was going to be less of this. And there's not. No. And last year, I had the opportunity to go to Calder Road and see, physically see how close together these women were found in that particular area. And it's just, it's wild to me that that occurred. And like, right now, there's like a, there's a church and it's behind a church. So it's a little developed, but there are still fields. You could still see the farm from where the bodies were found. It's very, uh sad place to be. Oh, and also, just as a note, Texas Killing Fields means that field off of Calder Road, but it also means the stretch of highway between Houston and Galveston. So it's I-45. So we're talking about that that larger expanse, but where man mentioned as well is the Calder Road specifically. And that's really what the documentary focused on. But we focus on from Houston to Galveston. And I have yet to see anywhere that has this comprehensive inclusion of all victims as we do. Yeah. Simply because it is so massive. And even going back and doing research, I actually found more victims from time periods that we've already covered that we'll cover on our future episodes because there's just more coming out. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I'm better researching today than I was two years ago. So I'm like, well, let me just double check to make sure we didn't miss anybody. Yeah. And it's just to me, it's so confounding why there is such a confluence of violence against women in this section. Maybe if you look at any metropolitan city with this type of geographic expanse, sure, maybe you'll find something similar. But I kind of don't think so. I haven't heard about this anywhere else. Well, and it's wild, too, that we're going to talk about some that happened in the recent years. But that place has been built up since when we first discussed it. There's brand new housing and they're really nice houses, too. But the whole area has been built up, but there's still like 
open area still available, if that makes sense. It's an interesting place for sure. Yeah, from what I've seen, it also seems that law enforcement has a little bit more strict policies and they have to put people in to VICAP, which is if there's a violent crime, it's very particular ones. You have to put data points in a system that's federal so that they can say, are there patterns that are happening across jurisdictions? And I want to think that Texas has some mandatory reporting. So how is it that we're still having so much of this? Some of the ones that we're going to talk about, some are unsolved and so many, so many are partner violence. Yeah. Perhaps it's worth noting a culture where that's happening a lot. What does it mean when women are killed disproportionately in an area? Like, what does it say about how people feel about women in that area? Oh, yeah. Whether it's a conscious bias or not. But anywho... All that because we were talking about Tim Miller, but definitely watch the documentary. I think it's really well done. And I'm pretty confident that the author, Catherine Casey, who wrote Deliver Us, which Amanda had read as we were doing our research, is also in the documentary as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And if you get a chance, read that book. It's very worth it because she talks to the families. But we're going to move on from Texas Killing Fields to something fully different, which is Dyatlov Pass. And we first covered Dyatlov Oh, first six months of recording. We have a whole episode on it. It's a it's an interesting listen. It's a fun time. But broadly, it's a mystery of a group of hikers slash skiers whose remains are found in a bizarre scene in Russia. And when rescuers go looking for them, it's because they didn't report back when they said they were supposed to. How they find their bodies is really confounding. New theories keep coming out. And the last one that we have talked about was a type of avalanche. Yeah, that seemed to make a lot of sense. It did to me. (laughs) But there is a new theory. And this theory is that the group encountered nitric acid fog that had been emitted by a secret rocket test. Now, to me, I was like, that feels very conspiracy theory. That's like a very specific type of thing. Yeah. But hear me out. Okay. This theory was introduced by a Russian newsletter. And they actually said that when they talked about it, that the theory was supported by relatives of the deceased hikers. So let's start there. Hmm. Okay. A researcher who was a part of the search team for the group in 1959, Vladislav Karolin, said that he remembered seeing stones protruding through the snow, and that there wasn't enough snow for the avalanche theory to be accurate because it would have covered up those stones. And it actually kind of looked like some of the snow had melted there. Hmm. But not in the surrounding areas. And he said that he also remembered that around that time, people were saying they saw a fireball in the sky. And we talked about that in our original episode, too, that a lot of people had said they saw that. And they were like, I don't know what it is, but I thought I saw it. And we kind of jokingly were like, maybe UFOs, right? Like thinking like, well, what could it be, right? Like, what's a fireball? Well, maybe it's this. So another researcher, Vadim Skabinski, thinks that the fireballs may have been the exhaust gases from a rocket that had been launched. And it's been confirmed that Russia was conducting missile launches in February of 1959, and six were in the area where the hikers were. Additionally, reports had mentioned that snow around the camp had been melted, but not in the neighboring areas. And this would suggest that the snow wasn't melting because of warming weather, but because something happened in that particular space. Now, researchers are also suggesting that there was a failed, quote, R-12 liquid single stage medium range ballistic missile that failed and it caused nitric acid fog to reach the tent. So that's why they came bursting out because it's obviously affecting them. Nitric acid is colorless, highly corrosive, and can cause both confusion and pain. And per these researchers, 
there would have been about 10 to 15 tons of this substance. I did find a research study that talked about how nitric acid fog can affect a person. However, I do not have the technical or chemical ability to translate this many parts per million to this 10 to 15 tons of this substance kind of number. But the way that they talked about in the research study was that I'm assuming it was a relatively low amount they were testing because these particular researchers were testing on themselves. And so they were like, after a little while, we weren't feeling so good. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah, they're like, after 45 minutes, we removed ourselves from exposure. And then we noticed that the effects didn't go away. So... Science, man. Interesting way to, yeah, science. Yeah. It would explain, though, why seasoned hikers set up where they did, where they thought, you know, it should be safe, and why they were surprised. Although, does it answer the eyes and the tongue thing? Okay, so it explains why they cut themselves out of their tent. It explains why somebody may have shimmied up a tree to try to get out of the fog. To me, it explains why they would be in relative states of undress because there's no time to put clothing on to get away from this fog. I don't think it explains the eyes and the tongue still, though. Hmm. So does it pass the Lindsay theory test? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it passes more than an avalanche. Okay. Okay. Well, now I'm curious, like, what other theories are going to come up now that we can uh, science a little better? Not us. Other people, though. (laughs) Clearly. Clearly. We're not scientists. All right, so now we're going to move on to another update. And this is from a full episode that we did on this case. This particular case was relatively complex in terms of allegations and timelines. And if you do want to listen to the full episode, it has a pretty lengthy name, but we wanted to respect all of the victims that we had covered. So it is called The Murders of Barbara Raposa, Karen Marsden, and Doreen Levesque. And in parentheses, it's Fall River Cult Killings. And then that is part of our Bridgewater Triangle and Satanic Panic series. So that's Bridgewater Triangle and Satanic Panic 3. Did a lot. It did a lot. It went into a lot of things that we didn't even realize that we were putting two series together to cover this case. There were murders happening. We're not sure who actually did it. And we're not sure if it had satanic elements within the killings, like people say. Yeah. So as an update, Robin Murphy was up for parole and she was again denied. Per the parole board, she has not demonstrated that she is rehabilitated enough. And for how wild some of her uh, speeches to the parole board were in the past, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. She seems to be kind of one of those people who's like, if I admit some bad things, then you'll believe what I'm having to say. Mm -hmm. And it's like, just because you're admitting to some bad things doesn't mean that we think that you are admitting to all of the bad things and telling the truth. Right, right. And just as a refresher, she has been given parole once, but then ended up going back. Yeah. They were also concerned with how her story continues to change. So we'll see what happens in the future, because I do know that they're still working on a lot of things behind the scenes. And a documentary crew is still sort of working with this case. Another case update, and this one always makes my heart sad, and that's Jelani Day. And quick summary of it, Jelani Day was living and going to school in Bloomington, Illinois, and he was studying to be a doctor. He was last seen on campus August 24th of 2021, and his car was found a few days later. His belongings were found in various places, and then his body was later found floating in the Illinois River. So we have some case updates, but also some other updates. So we're going to start with the other updates first. But so in August of last year, the Jelani Day Foundation launched 
and they discussed the goals of the foundation and celebrated Jelani's life. The foundation's goals include support for missing minorities' families, as well as a scholarship for young Black men studying speech pathology, which I like how specific it is and how it truly is a tribute to Jelani. His family is hoping to raise over at least 100000 to be able to provide resources for other families, including funds to help for searches, as we mentioned a moment ago, and for consultation before engaging with law enforcement and resources for therapeutic services. Jelani's older sister said, we want to make sure that the next family, if they happen to go through this, that they are a priority. We want to make sure that everyone gets the access and the resources that they need. And it's so terrible that what happened to Jelani, but I, I feel like I find it so moving that when a person who's gone through this, their thought is, but I don't want anyone else to have to go through this either. So the case updates that we have are about information we've learned from what initially happened. The Pentagraph filed a Freedom of Information request and got copies of emails from law enforcement as part of that request. And they learned a bit more about how Jelani's belongings were found. And specifically, they learned that a high school student on his way to work found Jelani's car and he had seen it on September 25th, but he didn't say anything. And when he came to work the next day at the YMCA, he told his supervisor about it because he was like, once was strange. Two means there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then he called the police. When the car was found, the license plate wasn't ripped off. It had been clearly carefully removed. And like the surrounding area, they used the metal detector to search for it to see if it was just like thrown into the woods or something like that. And they couldn't find it. So they looked for his license plate specifically. A person who was looking for their lost drone was the person who found his wallet. And they brought it home with them. And that person's father recognized the name, but he couldn't remember like where he remembered it from. So he looked it up online and that's when he called the police. His mother said that police originally told her that someone reported seeing Jelani walk down the street and throw his wallet. And then they changed the story to that it was somebody with a drone. His phone was found by a driver who had pulled over on the side of I-74. And the driver saw a phone with a shattered screen and was like, I could sell this. So they took it to the nearest Walmart and they sold it for $89 at something called an Echo ATM. Police got possession of the phone, but since it's an iPhone, they weren't able to get much information from it. His shorts, socks, and shoes were found on the riverbank by two ISU students, and the clothing was found after his body had already been recovered. This one still confuses me so much because there's so much going on with it. And my confusion lies into why, how they said that he killed himself. I think that is the most alarming part of this is that these are details that we didn't have in the beginning. But we were like, there's no way that he took his own life given this series of facts. But now when you look at it like this, it's even more bizarre. It is. Mm -hmm. And it's sad that there's still no answers. Yeah. So we're going to move on to another one that I feel like everyone in the world has heard about. And we briefly talked about the case, but we've been talking about the updates because it's so widely shared. And that's JonBenet Ramsey. And if you don't know what happened, the day after Christmas in 1996, JonBenet Ramsey, who was just eight years old, was found dead in her home after her parents had called the police to report that she was missing. There is a laundry list of bizarre variables around this case that we discussed in our introduction, which would have been True Crime Digest 14. And there's a bit of an update. A new document has been released from the three weeks after her death that reflects that the DNA under her fingernails did not belong to any of her family members. This came out from Lou Smith's upcoming book, 
And what's interesting is, as of our recording, this was reported on Fox News, then on some shady kind of news sites. And per the Fox News article, the original detective on the case knew about the DNA findings and didn't use the information to exclude suspects from his investigation. What I find interesting is that I feel like everybody hones in on her brother, even though this DNA evidence suggests that's a dead end. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what other information they had that made them think otherwise, but it makes me kind of like tilt my head like, hmm, what do you know? Yeah. Well, and we we kind of talked about that a little bit, that it was just the way that they investigated was very strange. And a lot of the people who started, you know, the early investigation were a little in over their head. And that led to so many more questions being asked later, which are hard to, you know, come back from. Yeah. When there's more details on this, we will continue to update. Another one that we first discussed a while back on uh, True Crime Digest 12 is the case of Naomi Irion and Troy Driver. And as a quick reminder, Naomi Irion was 18 years old when she disappeared from a Walmart parking lot on March 12th of 2022. There was some suspicious surveillance footage from that morning. And then on March 15th, her car was found with evidence inside suggesting something criminal happened. Then later that month, on March 29th, her body was found in a remote part of Churchill County. Troy Driver was then arrested. In addition to kidnapping and murder, he is charged with sexual assault, robbery, and destroying evidence. In July, Driver's defense attorney filed motions saying he may not be competent to stand trial. Evidence hearings were supposed to start September 13th, but they are now suspended until he's evaluated by a psychiatrist. It is unknown if the death penalty is on the table. However, Driver was assigned an attorney certified to handle death penalty cases, in addition to a public defender. There were various rumors circulating online that Driver died by suicide while behind bars, but the Lyon County Sheriff's Office confirmed that he is still indeed alive. So once they figure out if he's able you know, to stand trial, we'll update you and hopefully this family will get justice for what happened to their baby. Yeah. So we had a bunch of case updates this month, but that about wraps it up. We probably won't wait as long between our next True Crime Digest update. And we'll probably cover some new cases in that as well. Also, there's a lot happening with the Lori Vallow case that we will be updating too. We're just waiting on a few more details to come out because sometimes with that one, especially because it's been dragged out for so long, it's hard when we go, this is happening. And then the next week, there's an answer to that. So we're waiting for a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And we also have to wait for a, a moment when we can record it literally the week before we put it out, because otherwise there's too much that happens. And then we have to like do some some edits and some inserts after we record it. And sometimes it sounds a little weird. Yeah. We're working on it. It's coming. We have a section on our website. It's truecreeps.com where you can either ask questions about ongoing cases. Like say you're like, why are they doing this thing this way? Or you can suggest a case for us to cover on True Crime Digest for updates or as a big old episode altogether. So feel free to check that out if you'd like to. Yeah. Or if there's just a case in general you want us to cover or a spooky topic. Oh, also, as a note, you can buy your Arizona Ghost Tour tickets. We are very excited about this one because we're going to be in golf carts driving around, which also means it's a little bit more expensive, but it's a little bit longer and we get to ride in style. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> We do. Yeah. And when we were talking to them, they're like, sometimes, I mean, we do go over sometimes. So they have a lot of stories. I took their tour years ago, but I know that they updated and they did say that they will take us to specific spots depending on the type of thing you want to hear. 
because Wickenburg's very old and there's a lot of different things that have occurred there. So I told them all of our topics and what we generally talk about. So they're going to try to tailor it to True Creeps listeners. Ooh. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So again, this will have limited spots. So if you do want to come, I would buy your tickets sooner rather than later. Check out our show notes for a link. We'll also have it on our social media too. Yeah, yeah. We're very, very excited. They won't be as well-dressed ghosts as Baltimore ghosts from what what we understand, but they're going to be interesting and their stories are great. And we're excited nonetheless. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. <laughs> to 10 to 15. To, 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 Harry, we don't need to meow during this. I cannot hold you. I love you so much, my man. I love you so much. Every episode, me talking to Harry. Sir, can you see his little foot? Justin? I know, and I would be holding him. I would be holding him, and that's why I need him. But it's because you don't want another Mothman episode where he's purring the whole time. I mean, I have a problem with that. Harry, Harry, we loved you in the episode art. Here, I'll give you up-ups while it's her turn. How's that sound? I love that you call it up-ups now. Well, I have to. That's what it's called. Harry, you want to do you want a quick quick cameo? Are you shy now? Wait, you don't have anything to say? Here, I'm just oozing and throwing Harry, my sweet boy. He misses me. <gasps> do you miss Amanda? What do you think? Can you hear him? Yeah, that's a boy. Okay. You can lay here while Amanda <laughs> goes, but then you gotta go. I'll rub your belly until then. He's like, jokes on you. Oh, what am I saying? Oh, you're typing. Uh, lots of spaces. He's got his buddies on this space bar.